Today's guest spent 27 years on the Victorian Police Force, 15 of those as a detective in the Rape and Homicide Squads. If you have the opportunity to see our guest speak live, please do so. She's an absolutely remarkable person and so inspiring. Please welcome Narelle Fraser. Welcome to One Moment, Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. Hey, Narelle. Oh, hello. How interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Where'd you come from? Thanks for doing this. I'm glad you don't have a camera because um, I haven't, I've only just pulled my hair back. I haven't put on a bit of lippy or anything. <laughs> so I'm there's glad. There's a reason why I don't do, uh, there's a reason why I don't publish a video content of, of this because I don't think I've put makeup on for about three months since I've, you know, been at home. So <laughs> oh, you say that. I've been lockdown. So yeah. I was, I, I, I was looking this morning in my, uh, in the mirror, just while I was cleaning my teeth or something. And, and there's, um, oh my God, I look a treat. So. <laughs> It suits I'm me thinking, just fine. Mate, I'm, sitting, I'm sitting here um, and I'm thinking just as we're speaking, maybe I should do like a podcast in pyjamas. Well, I do. I have <laughs> a little – I have a confession to make because I do have a pair of tracksuit pants on. Oh, that's all right. So am I. <laughs> I think tracking pants are the um, most worn item in lockdown ever. I, f- I think you're right. Surely. I think you're right. And I, I saw something the other day. It was very funny of um, somebody getting ready for a Zoom. And I do the same thing myself. You know, you make your hair nice and you, um, I don't know, put on a bit of lippy or whatever. And then underneath you've got on your pair, your PJs and a pair of slippers or something. <laughs> oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear yeah. me. Well, thank you for doing that. Are you well? Yeah, yeah, I am really Good. well. And yourself? Terrific. Very well. I'll be happy when this stage two lock, you know, not stage two, we're in stage three, but, you know, lockdown 2.0 finishes. Oh, I... But with the numbers, I think we're going to be here for a bit longer. Oh, I think we are. I think we're in deep doo-doos. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it goes mm. to stage four. And I know that is terrible for a lot of people, but what's the alternative? What is What is stage four that you just can't, we just can't leave? The house at all? Uh, I think you can, but you can't go within, say, five kilometres of your home and that you can only go out to, say, do your essentials like shopping and that between a certain hours, let's say 7am and 3pm, and then you have to stay at home. So why would the supermarkets be open? Because no one's allowed out. And I think the same with your exercise and all that sort of stuff. So... Yeah, it, it, it will be very different. That's not but, that bad anyway. Oh, look. Uh, well, it's not that bad for people to say, I'm assuming, that you're quite happy in uh, lockdown, you're doing okay, and so am I. But, oh, those poor people that, you know, I've got, I don't know, half a dozen kids and they're living in a shoebox, you know, that sort of thing. Um, or they're trying to do homeschooling. Yeah, I think that would be very different. Oh, my God. Yeah. Or they're in a violent, yeah, you know, I'm I can't help. I'm very that I don't have children at the moment. Oh, God, me too. And and also, 
you know, all those people that are in a really vulnerable position, you know, like um, it just yeah. makes it more vulnerable for Domestic them. violence. Oh, situations. my God. Yeah. 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 Yes, anyway. Right. That yep. sort of brings us full circle in regards to your story, really, because I know you from listening to you on the Australian True Crime podcast, which is absolutely amazing. And your stories that you tell, there are, how would we, how would I describe them? I, I come away from those stories with a huge sense of gratitude that there are people out there doing the sort of work that you used to do in the sex crimes unit and then homicide, mm-hmm. because I, for one, could never do that sort of work. And I'm so grateful that there are people like yourself out there that are willing to do it. So I'd like to sort of start the podcast off with really um, why you sort of entered into the police force in, in the first place. Uh it was I was a very um, I was a black sheep in my family. I um, I've got two sisters, and my mum was a secretary, and I'd always wanted to be a secretary, and so I left school when I was about um, first term of fourth form, which was really like these days that you wouldn't hear of that. But um, I was about sixteen, and I went to um, business college. And I was a secretary for 12 years. And I'd always been interested in people. And oh, I don't know, I just loved, I was very social and oh, I don't know, I just loved people. But there was something about helping people that I really liked. Anyway, for some reason I got, I don't know how, but I got um, interested in becoming a lifeline counsellor, a telephone counsellor. And I did some training, you know, the 24-hour, obviously the 24-hour lifeline thing. And I did some training and I went really well. I really liked it. And I did the phones for, it was a volunteer, obviously, and I did the phones for maybe 12 months. And, um, you know, the weekend or shift overnight or something. And then... I became a trainer with them, so they obviously saw some potential. Uh, But it was during those years at Lifeline that I realised there was so many people out there that needed uh, just support and help. And, like, I felt it was a way of giving back because I had come from, or I do come from, a very, very supportive, uh, loving uh, warm home and I realised with Lifeline that there were so many people that didn't have that and I wanted people, I wanted to try and help people feel the way I did. I mean, obviously you can't, there's some people that will never, unfortunately, never have that, never feel like that, but I wanted to do my best for people to know that there are people out there that want to help them, that care for them. And so that's what I loved about Lifeline. And then I thought to myself, when somebody was really desperate on the phone, you could could do things, like you could get them help, you could uh, ring the police or whatever. And a couple of times I rang the police, you know, to go around and do a welfare check or something, and I thought to myself, Mm -hmm. what a fantastic 
um, way to help people. And it had never, ever crossed my mind until I went to Lifeline. And at the time, I was about 25, 26, and I was very fit, unlike today, <laughs> where I I have stacked on the – I've got my winter coat on at the moment. <laughs> this never come to the second reason why I'm also not doing a video component of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unlike now. But, um, yeah, I was really fit at the time. And, and again, it was – I had no intent – like the police force was just not on my radar. But you know how things just sort of fall into place and, like – and I started to make inquiries about the police. And from the minute I started making inquiries, you know when you sometimes think this is just right – I have found it. I have found my niche, you know. Mm. And um, and when I went to the, and I went through all the the tests and everything to become a policewoman, and oh god, I loved it. And literally, like I walked into a careers office in um, in Melbourne, a Victoria Police careers office, and just what they told me. Anyway, I just knew I'd you know I'd found what I'd been looking for, I suppose. And I never, ever looked back. <laughs> Why were you the black sheep of the family? Oh, gee. Well, there was no police, um, no military, no nothing in my family. My dad was um, a shoe salesman. And isn't it funny? Dad mm-hmm. thought that he had the best job in the world, being a shoe salesman. Like, like, Good on him. Yeah, I know. I know. He used to travel around and talk to people. That was just his... Um, he just loved it. So dad was a shoe salesman. I had, um, I've got two sisters who, uh, one was um, very arty. The other one um, was really good with um, sewing and she actually became a fashion designer. So that's, and mum was a secretary. But I had, there was nothing anywhere in my family uh, that, um drew me to policing that's why and when I I remember when I told mum because my dad died when I was quite young but when I told mum uh, everyone was sort of my god (laughs) where did that come from (laughs) but it was through working with Lifeline that interest sparked Mm. Mm. so how did you go from sort of starting as a recruit and then ending up in the sex is it sex crimes unit is that the official title of the unit uh, it is now, well, it's had um, the Department of Many Changes, uh, name changes, but when okay. I first started, um, there was, it was called When You Became a Detective and um, Investigated Serious, uh, not that any um, sex offence isn't serious, but um, with the serious, um, uh, the more serious end of sex offences, let's say, you know, like the rapes on the street, um, uh, the um, mm. unknown offenders, all that sort of stuff, the, the abductions and that sort of thing. Uh, that was called, that was the uh, rape squad and then it changed to mm-hmm. the sexual crime squad. And uh, now they still have a sexual crime squad, but now they've also got uh, another arm from that called um, uh, Socket. That's the Sex Offence and Child Abuse Investigative Teams and they are dedicated okay. Um, all over the state. They've got them in all the 
um, main uh, sort of policing regions, and they they now purely do um, sexual assault investigations, sex offences and child abuse, dedicated teams. So when you go into the police force, do you go in saying this is what I want to do or is that something that sort of came about through your general policing? So I'd imagine that you'd have to be sort of in a traffic unit yep. before you, you know, what's the what's the path, what pathway did you take to get to get to that unit? I took a very standard pathway. Um, I started off uh, on the div van uh, at St Kilda, uh, the div van at Carlton, and that's just um, going to all, you know, you, standard is a terrible word to use, but you would go to um, uh, accidents, you'd do death messages, you would do um, assaults. Um, so I, I was working at Carlton at the time and I just became very interested in domestic violence and abuse of children. I don't know where that came from, but I just thought somebody has got to do something to protect the children of this world that were just so... Um, I'd never experienced uh, anything like when I joined the police. I didn't know the abuse that young children received and I just thought somebody's got to you know do this and I, I just I found it very interesting and I wanted to sort of um, go down that path and a sergeant at Carlton he suggested that what about looking at um, it was called CPS in the days when I first joined community policing squad and I looked into that and all they did really was um, investigate uh, child abuse, um, help domestic violence, uh, survivors, finding accommodation, taking statements, taking them to court, all that sort of stuff. And that's, I thought, gee, I really like that idea. And that's, um, I ended up going to Broadmeadows. Um, so they had a CPS. And that was probably one of the best. Um, experiences in my life being there I've still got very dear friends from those days but that was just a group of us that uh, all we did was um, investigate child abuse and sexual assaults um, and from there that's why I just loved that part of policing and I I then obviously started to specialize in sex offenses and I went for a, um, a job I became a detective because that's when I thought I really I want to dedicate myself to investigating serious sex offences, um, and that's why I went. For, I became a detective and went to the rape squad. Had you come across rape victims in your general um, policing before you moved across to that squad? Uh, yes, I had. In fact, you you get a lot of that on the div van. You can get anything from the div van being the divvy van or yeah. divisional. The, yeah, the div van. Okay. Get with get for, with the program for you. For our for our American, <laughs> no, for the American <laughs> listeners, we have to explain the slang, the Aussie okay. slang. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The div the van's where you put the the put the criminals in the in all the you know yeah. people that suspect of being criminals in the back. Yes, that's right. Before you take them to the police station. Yeah, that's right. The divvy van. It's it's short for the divisional van. So you might call it the van. Or the div van, yeah. or the divvy van, but um, yeah. So 
and and that you use the div van. The div van is uh, you use that with general policing. So you go to all the jobs in a div van because if you have to arrest somebody, you would put them in the back of the the divvy van um, and take them to wherever you know to get interviewed or whatever. Um, but when you're on the div van, you're the very front line, and that's probably the most dangerous. Um, uh, role as a police person is on the div van because you can get anything from somebody saying I've lost my dog or I've found this purse to um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to kill someone or I've just murdered. People actually walk into a police station and say I've actually just, you know, murdered my partner or you you might go what? to, oh yeah, it, it is it is incredible the things that People just walk into a police station and tell police. I think, you know, sometimes obviously it gets too much for them and the guilt or whatever, I don't know. But, yeah, you have all sorts of things on the div van and as a watch housekeeper, like when you're on the, the counter at the police station. The sort of things you get in there are just all over the place. Uh, you know, so many different offences. But you do get quite a few people that come in and say... Um, I want to talk to somebody I was raped by my partner or I want to talk to somebody about um, uh, childhood sexual abuse and that's... Um, so what's yeah. the first step then? Do you Does that person that's at the counter take them into it or do you say, I need to call somebody that's specialised in... Like what's that first step once someone comes in? Well, the first step would obviously be to support them and um, what... I would say to them if they go into a police station now um, to say, look, this is what's happened, um, they would be um, taken somewhere where they can um, sit in peace and quiet and we would explain to them uh, that we have specialists in this field and I'm going to um, get somebody to come and talk to you. Um, so we would um, basically not physically, but we would wrap our arms around them the minute they come in and say something like that. And um, and do all police officers get training on that before uh, they go, like how to handle those situations? Uh, they do, but then there's specialists, you know, like, for instance, um, there's specialists with armed robberies or there might be specialists with fraud. Um, so there's specialists in every field and you get a very basic training at the academy as to what to do in these situations. But with a sexual assault, you would never ever, and this is taught from the very start, you would never ever ask that person there and then, tell me everything that's happened because they then have to would have to repeat it to the expert and then they'd have to repeat it at court and then they have to repeat it somewhere else. So what we try and do is we just um, tell them, look, I'm going to get an expert to talk to you um you would get the very basics just so you know who to call mm. i've heard a lot of um victims of sexual assault one of the questions that the police ask is <clears throat> excuse me is what were you wearing at the time mm -hmm. and often they take that as blaming the victim what's the reason behind having to ask that question? 
I don't think that would be a normal question that you would ask initially. That would come up in the main interview um, of the victim. Um, it would you would ask where were they? What happened? How did it happen? Tell me everything. Um, and what you were wearing would just be one of the many questions that were asked. That is not a specific question, but you'd have to ask it. It would be a normal um, question in any investigation. Uh, what were you wearing? Um, we might, and it would be for no other reason, I don't know, we might have to find them on CCTV footage or we might have found a shoe down an alleyway and we want to know what the person was wearing. There's all sorts of reasons, but it is mm -hmm. certainly the last thing that we would be thinking of is um, I think uh, you're sort of heading towards what a lot of people say is, um, well, what would you expect when you're wearing something like that? That sort of, is that what, mm. where you're heading? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I think, I think that, yes. Yeah. Mm. And I, I feel very strongly about that question um, because somebody should be able to wear what they want to anywhere they want. And, and this divides a lot of the community. They should be able to wear what they want. and But the problem is you don't know who's, I don't know, let's say it's a nightclub. You don't know who's in that nightclub um, that is going to see what you're wearing is, as a different, um, you are, might be expressing yourself. You, you feel good, you've lost a lot of weight and, I don't know, you want to wear a short skirt and a, a little top or something. But the problem is other people, um, don't see it like that and other people and I'm probably talking a, an offender a male offender would often see that as a um, uh, oh, what would you call it um, a message that um, rather than I'm feeling good it's like you know they have this vision that somebody wants them you know it you should be able to wear what you want but yeah. Oh, gee, it's hard, isn't it? I was going to say, but you can't. But you can, you should be able to. It just, why is it that what we wear is um, so? It is important. Um, but from a question point of view, your initial question, um, it it's certainly it, it's one of many questions you ask. It's not a. Um, it doesn't mean anything by it. It's just a. You have to know what somebody was wearing, but also you have to know, you ask them, what were they thinking? As in, sorry, not what were you thinking. Um, you ask, you know, what were you thinking at the time? Where, How were you feeling at the time? Um, tell me everything that you saw. Tell, tell me everything that you felt. It's just one of many, many investigative questions. Hmm. How long would you usually spend taking a victim's statement? It can go anything from, depends a lot on the victim, but it can go anything from, I don't know, maybe if somebody doesn't want to say much and it's like getting blood out of a stone, which it is sometimes because they're just so um, traumatised or, or they feel very awkward and don't want to tell you whatever, um, it can go anything from maybe the shortest one I've ever done. It might be a, 
a couple of hours. Um, but I have taken um, victim statements that have been days. I can remember I went to a job in Darwin, uh, right up the top of um, Australia, and there was a job there that I took three or four days, and that was like eight hours a day. Um, a couple of breaks, you know, we'd have a break for lunch and all that, but there was, that was historical sex abuse. So we were going over a lot of um, uh, incidents. But, yeah, I mean, I would think on average it would probably take um, half a day. And that's for a, uh, you know, that's fairly short. A quick one. That yeah. would be a quick one. Yep. Why were you up in Darwin? Were you working for the Darwin, the Northern Territory Police? No, no, there was um, a victim of um, a historical sex offence uh, was living in Darwin. The offences that had occurred in Victoria, which is where I worked, but uh, she oh, had okay. gone to Darwin. And mm. so um, I, was re I went up to Darwin to um, interview her. And, uh, you know, when you say about what we are wearing, isn't it funny? Like, Every offence I've ever investigated, that's one of the questions. But as I said to you, there's, you know, hundreds of questions you ask. <laughs> mm. Although I must mm. say, just as a matter of interest, um, we've changed our way of interviewing now, Victoria Police, and now we uh, we are trained, highly trained, about questioning. And just for the viewers, uh, for the viewers, <laughs> for the listeners out there, we now try not to ask many questions. We only have a few, and the way we do that is to ask open questions, so that um, you're not asking, you know, all the when, what, why, how, who for everything. And we um, follow a, oh, what would you call it, a process called TEDS, T-E-D-S. And the way you get around asking millions of questions is to just ask a couple. And one of them is, so TED stands for tell me everything. T, tell me. E, explain to me. D, describe for me. And S is show me. So at the very start, you say to the victim, I want you to tell me everything that happened. Don't leave anything out because everything is important. And sometimes they might tell you lots and lots of stuff. Um, and other times they might just tell you a little bit from that very, uh, from tell me everything. You're really giving them an opportunity to tell their story rather than me asking. Do you get the difference? It's... um. Mm -hmm. It's a um, more open-ended question. Oh, very much so. Yeah, there's a place for closed mm. questions like when, why, how, what, and who, but the open questions gets them uh, talking, and it gets it makes them feel like, and we are, we're interested, um, and they do it in their own time at their own pace. It's a really um, interesting way of getting people to open up, because if you say um, what happened then. Often they'll just go, oh, oh, no, or nothing. or But if you ask them to tell me everything or describe for me, you can't say yes or no to that, can you? Mm. Mm. Were there more, because you worked in this area 
of sex crimes for many years. Were there more, were, were certain victims sort of more um, impact, like did they sort of impact you more than other victims? Do you sort of find that you oh, very had ones so. that stayed with you more? Yeah. Yes. Um, I think uh, the child uh, victims uh, stayed with me a lot. They're very hard to... Um, Shake. Uh, shake. Yeah, it's a good word. Uh, they're yeah. very hard to shake. Um, but just it's the ones that uh, the cruelty that mm-hmm. um, I heard, you just don't know how one human being can be so cruel. And generally it was either a, a parent or a step-parent with the kids. Um, just how cruel some people can be to children like innocent vulnerable little kids mm. and and they have that has lifelong effects um on these kids and uh that sort of the cruelty is what um uh, really stayed with me look and there's adult victims as well um you know people that have just had unbelievable trauma and Sometimes it's the ones that come through and you think my, like their resilience is just astounding. You think how could you just put one foot in front of the other every day after what they've been through? How could you wake up and just get out of bed? But they do. It, some people have enormous strength where you and I would think oh, you just couldn't face, you know, getting up every day sort of thing. Do you find that, do you come across people, and I'm saying this as someone that hasn't worked in with victims or mm-hmm. and is not a sexual assault survivor myself, so I come from this from a very naive yes. um, place. Yep. Do you find that there's, that there's people, I'd imagine, that all spectrum, I, and I've heard a lot of um, that the victims which they themselves feel a lot of shame, and I, I don't think that mm-hmm. that's, justified it's not their fault Mm. but they do tend to take this on but they then have people that also feel that immense anger and that just want to bring this person to justice for over what they've done do Mm -hmm. you have both aspects of the spectrum oh very much so um i think people um a lot of victims feel ashamed because they think that it's their fault and the reason they think it's their fault is because they've been told it's their fault by the offender Um, and that is drummed into them that the only reason I did this was was because you made me or um, like that sort of an attitude and so they do feel ashamed and um, it becomes um, embedded in their mind that it's their fault and um, that they do feel ashamed. And and what was the other feeling you said, feeling ashamed, and what was the other one? The anger, the, the anger that they just want to sort of get that person to justice really, put them yes. in prison. Look, to me, there's a lot of um, emotions that go with um, being um, the victim or survivor of sexual assault. It, it's the whole gamut of um, emotions, uh, the anger, Yes, that's, um, it's, oh, I think the anger is through um, 
often feeling like um, nobody understands. Um, mm. um, they don't really know how to deal with the emotions that they're experiencing. And um, I suppose anger is one way they think that they can release that that uh, feeling. Like, to be honest, the, the anger, um, I don't know if you realise, I think you know that um, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder um, oh God, mm. in 2012 through, you know, really dealing yeah. with all these things and um, not being able to shake, as you said, which I really like that expression, and not being able to shake a lot of things that I'd seen and um, witnessed and heard. Um, but anger is something that I had um, real dealings with that, and I'm not an angry person, and this... This is probably how other people feel when they get angry for all sorts of reasons. But I was never an angry person. But everything built up to the point where you're just you're frustrated. You're so you don't know what to do with yourself. Like, and like I got to the point where I was so angry I thought my head had burst. You know, so that must be how people were feel. You di- were you diagnosed when you were in homicide or still in sex crimes? Uh, no, when I was in homicide, I was at, um, oh, actually, hang on a minute. No, sorry, I'd gone, I'd been at homicide. Well, missing persons is an arm under homicide. I'd been at missing persons for five years. No, and then I went, um, I moved to the country with my husband. I'd always worked in uh, Victoria in the, the city. Um, and mm-hmm. we came up to the country, country Victoria, and I got a job at a socket as a detective um, at a sex offence and child abuse unit because that was always my passion. And I think, mm. well, I don't doubt, my uh, my um, symptoms were just getting worse and worse and I was ignoring them, thinking that I was just a bit run down or whatever. But there was a couple of jobs that I did at, um, well, jobs, <laughs> uh, investigations, we call them jobs, but investigations that I did at mm. Bendigo. Uh, where I was stationed, and I think it was just the straw that broke the camel's back. I over the years I'd um, seen a lot of things and experienced a lot of um, a lot of stuff. And when I got to Bendigo, I had to go to a number of to do a um, they used to call it SIDS, but now it's SUDI, sudden infant deaths. Um, to do one of them as a police person, is terrible. Um, I cannot explain how emotionally um, upsetting it is for the uh, police to deal with the poor parents that have gone through this. And generally the police might, I don't know, you might do one in your career, uh, have one investigation like that. But I had something like three in three months and, um, oh, look, there was a whole lot of um, oh, God, investigations that I had done that were just, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. It really was. It, and I just sort of believed I was starting to unravel. And So you hmm. went general policing, homicide, sex crimes? No, I went general policing, um, the CPS, like child abuse and sex offences. Then I went to the rape squad. Then I went to sex mm-hmm. Offences. Then I went to homicide, um, missing persons unit, and in missing persons unit, um, again that was dealing with people 
as police you generally meet people on the worst day of their life and after a while yeah not everyone's like this but after a while you know you just people's trauma I think I I absorbed so much grief and trauma from everybody else that I ended up I just mm-hmm. um you know my just unraveled but at missing persons you know I was um oh god I was digging up dead bodies and body parts and finding them in you know dead bodies in all sorts of terrible places and having to go and deal with to tell Mm. the parents that you know we've found their son or their daughter like just really tough um, emotional stuff and the thing about um, post-traumatic stress was that thought I was dealing with it you know pretty well and and um, I thought that was my strength you know was um, dealing with people and just comforting people and I, I just there's something about it I like I feel like I've got the right attributes but in the end I suppose I my bottle got full and just overflowed and I couldn't deal with it anymore there's only so much trauma and grief somebody can deal with, I suppose. And from what you've, from what I've heard on, because um, you feature regularly on the Australian True Crimes podcast, which is fabulous. If you guys haven't heard Thank that, you. please go <laughs> listen to that. Yeah. Um, and you go into more detail about the cases that you've yep. that you've um, uh, investigated yep. over the years. But you talk about um, your bottle. Uh, getting filled up sort of one drip at a time and one of the ones that really stuck out for me um, is there was a case where I don't want to get too graphic but basically you thought the person was deceased when you found them and they they weren't it was the body in the boot one oh yes and you yep. actually climbed in with them um, and comforted them whilst I don't know other things were happening to to yep. pre- um pursue with the investigation and yep. one of the police officers at that time never returned to work after that day he that's just couldn't right. de- deal with that yep. and I thought you know that's for him to be so impacted of that and you were just like you know well that was just another day in the job I thought wow that that was one of the cases with me that I was like oh this woman's you know incredible and all every story that you tell I just think oh my goodness like you're amazing like just but that drip feeding of filling up the bottle yeah to the well, point of overflowing i think the the woman in the boot that was maria corp and that i think that was probably that um detective uh that was probably his bottle overflowed that day yeah. you know not everybody's bottle overflows you know but i think on that day his bottle obviously overflowed but and that's why he he never came back to policing. But, you know, I think the sad thing about that is that he never spoke to anyone. He was so ashamed of how he felt, the fact that he just couldn't cope with it anymore, that he quietly slipped away and never told anybody. And that's what I think is just so sad. And I think that's something with my post-traumatic stress disorder, my PTSD, it... I felt the world had uh, almost ended when I realised I couldn't go back to work, I couldn't go back to policing because I was—I didn't realise how damaged I was, but I was very damaged, I was very sick. Um, 
but mm. it's funny how I've been able to find where one door closes, another opens. And what I've found is that by being so open and honest about how I felt and how I got to the point I did and what I've learned and how I've recovered and all that sort of stuff, by actually talking to people, it number one, I find it very cathartic. But also, I can't believe how many people contact me and say, thank you. You've just um, explained to me how I'm feeling. Um, just, I'm, I, I think it gives people permission sort of to feel, you know, this is okay. Um, I'm not, um, I felt it was very, yeah, I felt I was weak and unable to cope and that I would be judged like that and I felt very embarrassed. But it's funny, I now see it as a strength to go and seek help, to accept that there is something wrong and that's what I, and I've become this accidental mental health advocate. It's amazing. Um, just by, you know, being honest and um, telling people, you know, how it is and not to feel embarrassed and humiliated like who the hell wouldn't get um, upset at seeing, you know, a lot of stuff that... And it's not just police and emergency services. You know, you might go and see a car accident that you are so traumatised by being a witness or something. Um, it's not a weakness to be affected by it and to, um, you know, not cope. It's a strength to admit that there's something wrong and to go and see about it. Do you understand where I'm coming from? Yeah, can you describe the first time you realised that something was really wrong and that something wasn't quite right? The the signs were there for a long time um, when I look back, but it all came to, and the signs I'm talking about are, for instance, um, almost uncontrollable anger. Um, I was having these... Um, well, I didn't know what a flashback or a trigger was. I had no idea. Um, but when I saw, um, I don't know, little kids playing in a park or something, I would get this feeling that I was going to faint and I felt all lightheaded and I'd shake uncontrollably. And and I, I was making excuses thinking, oh, I'm a bit run down or whatever. But what happened was... There was a whole lot of things that were happening. I was also um, um, oh, overwhelmed. I couldn't concentrate on anything. Um, I I was confused. Uh, I wasn't sleeping. I was hypervigilant, like thinking the whole world was relying on me to feel safe, you know, all sorts of stuff. But what happened was I was at a court case and... It was a culmination of two weeks of really um, oh, emotional stuff like investigations. And the week before I'd been, uh, I'd done a warrant on a pedophile and I had done hundreds of investigations into pedophiles, unfortunately. But this one, I had to view a lot of child pornography for the court case and uh, it was 1,700 child pornographic videos and I remember that day after viewing these because we have to grade them and after viewing them it took me two days and I remember going home that night and something had shifted I don't know what it was but 
I just felt I was starting to unravel. Um, I couldn't stop thinking about what I'd seen. I was very upset. I was uh, looking at a couple of them. I did this. I'd go, <gasps> and, you know, I, like I couldn't control my emotions. And that was a bit of a, I'm thinking, God, what's going on there? I just couldn't understand why I was reacting that way. And, look, I, you know, I got over it and I went to work. And then the court case the following week was, um, I remember, um, it was a rape victim and she was giving evidence about the rape. And I remember sitting behind her in the court case and she was being hammered by the, the defence. And I remember thinking to myself, pardon me, Fiona, but I thought, this is bullshit. She is being raped all over again because she was so upset in the witness box. And I remember thinking to myself, this is all my fault. She's been raped all over again. It's because of me because I've got her to this point. And um, the next thing I remember was being in a coffee shop across the road from the court and the court staff coming over and saying, Narelle, what are you doing here? And I remember thinking to myself, what am I doing here? I'm supposed to be in court. I'm running a committal for a rape and my victim is in court giving evidence and I'm over at a coffee shop, like literally in La La Land. And I couldn't work out how I got over to the coffee shop and why I was there. I'm supposed to be running this court case. And apparently the magistrate was looking for me, um, the prosecutor, the defence. Oh, I was so embarrassed. I was embarrassed and I'm thinking, what's going on? And that night I remember thinking, that's not right. There's something very wrong. And I found out, um, oh, sorry, and I went to a doctor. I thought, hmm, something's not right here. So it took me four months, mind you, to um, get up the courage, I to suppose, to, to see a doctor, thinking mm. there's something very wrong. I just thought I was a bit run down or something. But I wasn't getting any better and I was getting very confused about a whole lot of stuff and not remembering and um, anyway, I went to the doctor four months later and he said, I think you've got PTSD. And I actually said to him, what's that? I didn't know. But this was in 2012. Um, and when he explained it to me, I remember in my mind ticking off, he'd go, you're feeling very um, angry. Yes, you're feeling blah, blah, blah. And he said, I think we might just send you to a psych just to make sure. And the, I went to the psych and she's the one that explained that in that court case, what had happened was I had a bout or whatever you call it of amnesia. So what had happened was in the court case, in court, my mind had just stopped. Couldn't take any more. And so going, I don't remember, I sort of lost about 20 minutes of my life because I don't remember going over to the coffee shop. Uh, so I just, you know, shut down. And she's also the one that explained about the bottle. And she explained PTSD is like when I first joined policing, I would, um, my bottle was pretty much empty. But every job I went to, if I was honest with myself, every job that I went to that had an effect on me is represented by a drip of water in that bottle. And at that court case, my bottle just overflowed. And I think that's a really, um, it's a great description of PTSD.
So how, at what point did the psych, um, psychologist or psychiatrist that you saw, were they attached to the police force or were they uh, independent? No, they were independent because, Fiona, you would never go to a police doctor or a police psychiatrist or psychologist because then you're admitting that there's something wrong um, and they might say, well, we're going to have to take you off, you know, investigations and um, put you in an admin role or something away from the general public. Well, loving policing, that's not what you want to do. So I have many friends who um, sought help privately because they were so um, embarrassed, humiliated, ashamed of the fact that they may be seen as weak and unable to cope, which is exactly how I felt. So, oh, God, no, you'd never go to anyone in the police because um, yeah, what would happen if people found out that you weren't coping? They'd think you were weak. Well, that's how I thought. And I think maybe a lot of people did back in those days, but now it's very different and so it should be. How long had you been in the police force at this stage? 27 years. Okay. And I absolutely, I would have to, I would have to say that twenty six and a half of those years were the best years of my life. And you know, even now, I would say, I still think it's the best job in the world. It exposes you to so many um, great experiences. There's a lot of sad stuff, yes, but all I would say is. Um, don't be like me, don't do what I did and ignore the signs. Um, you generally know in your own self the way your body is reacting. And when I look back, I was losing control big time. Did your partner and your loved ones around you sort of identify that more? Because you were saying, oh, I'm feeling run down, I was a bit angry. Were they saying, Narelle, something's really wrong? No, because I hid it. I kept it a secret. And say, for instance, of a night time, often I would lie in bed and my leg, one, one of my legs, would shake so much it would wake up my husband and I'd say, um, uh, oh, I don't know, I'd make up some excuse, I'm cold or whatever, and I might go into the spare room because I was just so embarrassed about um, my body sort of failing me. Um, and it isn't until, I suppose, looking looking back, they know something was wrong, but they didn't quite know what. But I think I hid it very well as well. And if somebody said to me, are you okay, Narelle? I'd say, yeah, I'm fine, just a, <laughs> a bit run down, you know, make a bit of a joke about it. But I think I hid it very well because I was ashamed of how I was feeling, ashamed that I might have a mental health issue, you know, that I might might be depressed or anxious or stressed. Sad to think that people feel like that, isn't it? But that's terrible to mm. think that you're keeping it a secret because you're so ashamed and that's why as a community we've got to be more accepting that, you know, life throws us a lot of challenges and it's it's not all um, 
you know, fun and laughs. When you went to see um, or seek therapy, did you hide that from your husband as well? Um, I did initially. Um, but okay. um, in the end, I couldn't hide it. And when yeah. I told him, so many things made sense. But there were many, many tears. Um, but without his support and the support of my family and friends, um, I'm, I'm not the sort of person that would um, uh, think about, you know, ending my life. Um, I've never, ever gone down that path. But I actually understand people that do. I understand people that cannot see a way out. Uh, and that's mm. not to say they don't have supportive, you know, partners and family and that as well. But um, thank God I've got the um, the genes that I have that um, gave me um, a way to to deal with it or the strength to deal with it because it takes a lot of strength to pretend you're okay, <laughs> you know, when mm. you're not. <laughs> um, and just one other thing while we're on that, I found um, the police were very good to me and they put me through a course at the Austin Hospital um, in Heidelberg for uh, PTSD um, sufferers in the police and there was eight of us in the program. It took me eight months to get on it. That's how many are um, suffering. But in that program, that made me realise how sick I was and I finally admitted I could admit to myself um, and others how bad I was and that was the turning point for me. How long had you been seeking external treatment from the privately from the police force before you went to them and said, I, I think I've got PTSD? Or what did that conversation look like? Uh, the conversation was with the doctor, uh, my private doctor. I went to see him. And I remember he told me on the mm -hmm. Monday and I rang work and said, um, I need a couple of days off, um, you know, a bit run down. And I think then the work cover, um, everything um, started, you know, the work cover. Um, I, I rang work and finally mm -hmm. admitted it. It only took me a couple of days because I realised when the doctor told me, and I did a bit of, you know, research, Dr. Google, um, about PTSD and what he told me, I knew it was pretty bad and I thought I'm going to have to admit it. And so I um, reluctantly told my work and um, they were very, very supportive. But I never, ever, after that diagnosis from the doctor, I never, ever stepped foot into a police station again. I never, ever went back um, because I think that the diagnosis made me realise um, I was very damaged and I couldn't afford to get any more damaged or I didn't know what would happen because it was very distressing. Oh, I could imagine. Hmm. Is PTSD something that you can with therapy and help and time um, overcome? Oh, absolutely. Oh, no, no, Fiona. No, absolutely. Um, it's like anything. Um, 
I don't, I don't, you could never, I will never be able to um, um, rid myself of the visions I have and the memories I have. But it's like every, all of us, most people in life have something happen that is traumatic or very sad and you learn um, to deal with it. You learn to live with it. Um, initially, it's all terrible but then as time goes on, time is a, it's not a healer as such, but it just helps. And I have learned the tools mm. to manage. Like I still, um, every time I see it, would you believe and how often would this happen? But every time I see a little child or a, a little kid playing, it still takes me back to what I saw in the, with pedophiles and that. However, I now understand why I feel the way I do and I can manage that. Does that make sense? So, um, and we're all the same. Mm -hmm. um, we just learn to manage. I now understand why I have the reactions I do and I've learned the tools to manage it. So I think mm. I'll always have those memories, but we all have memories, you know, along those lines, you know, with a death of a parent or, I don't know, something that happens in our life. But you do learn to manage it, but you never forget it. With with you being from speaking with you and from hearing you on on the Australian True Crimes podcast, your such your passion for policing came from being a advocate for the victim. And I think as people are different people, I'd say that there's police officers out there that want to get the the criminal that want to you know protect mm -hmm. and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Whereas you're very much coming across and have previously been such an advocate for the victim, how have you managed not having that after you left the police force? Because that, that seems to be a huge driver for you. Uh, yeah, it was, um, and it still is. Um, but just going back a little bit there, Fiona, um, I am, I am a, um, very passionate about victims, but there's nothing mm. better as a cop than having an offender <laughs> in your sights <laughs> and nabbing him <laughs> or her for that matter. There is nothing better. And I might be passionate about victims, but bloody hell, that, that adrenaline you get from knowing you've got someone in the sights and uh, the build-up to the arrest and everything and then knocking on their door. Oh my God! Or you know, arresting and putting the cuffs on. Hey, don't get me wrong, Fiona. I love the victims, but boy, I love getting the crooks. <laughs> Did you find it hard not to have a big grin on your face as you're putting those handcuffs on? Oh, you know. Well, and you know, sometimes. Oh, I probably shouldn't say, but you know, every now and then, there'd be one crook, you know, that's I don't know, say, um, offended against little kids. And I just whisper in their ear, pardon me, your fat. <laughs> I do apologise. <laughs> but there was nothing better than, you know, saying, you know, oh, I shouldn't say that. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Oh, it's a great feeling. But um, going back to um, the advocate, being an advocate for victims. Hang on, um, before we go back, yeah, I just yeah. want to revisit that. I can imagine that. Once, obviously, you you put them in the cuffs and stuff, and you got them. Yeah. And then the, obviously the legal proceedings. But I could imagine 
the beers with the team afterwards of the oh, celebrations that you've yeah. got him. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, every now and then you'd have him in the car and, um, of course, you couldn't say. You, you, they had to know why they were under arrest and why they were going to be interviewed. And, you know, so many pedophiles would say something like, um, oh, they wanted it. And I can, I would often say, I would often say to them, of course they did. You know, with my teeth gritted. Uh, yeah. Oh, you know, but um, just listen to that, the sarcasm oozing out of my voice. And they were, yes, and uh, I did enjoy mm. that. I enjoyed every now and then just have making a couple of sarcastic comments, which was very unprofessional of me. But yeah, just every now and then I just love to whisper. You're in the human, Narelle, though. Yeah. Like when you're seeing the stuff that you saw, and you've then you've got somebody in a position where they can't harm anyone else. Mm. Yeah, I imagine it, that That is very satisfying because you've got yeah. them off the street. There's no no one else is going to be, well, hopefully if the courts do their job um, and you've got the evidence you need, um, it is a really, really satisfying feeling to know that they're going inside um, and they won't be able to hurt anyone else. That's very, well, very satisfying. Way, Narelle, I think that you were, I think you're very restrained just with those few words. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Did you have a choice? Did you have a choice who, um, who you put them in? Are they in a cell by themselves while you like in between the interviews or? Uh, with when, other people because if they're in with other people I'd probably want to choose the biggest guy to put them in with. <laughs> funny, funny you say that there's a whole psyche behind who interviews and what you wear and um, you know whether you're going to have somebody that's um, like generally let's say with a pedophile pedophiles are generally fairly pathetic um, uh, insipid sort of people and so you generally wouldn't put a really big burly um, uh, policeman in with them um, if I because we generally you know you do your interviews with two of you generally hmm. you'd have somebody that was um, a bit sort of um, more a, a bit softer and um, didn't look so intimidating because they are um, that makes them feel uncomfortable. And what we're doing in, in an interview room, and how difficult is this? Like I've been telling them they're fucked on the way in to the interview, but once you get there, um, it's it's all about making them feel like we're being fair, we're we're listening, um, and because uh, we want them to feel comfortable enough to tell us, so that we get um, an admission or a confession. Um, and that's all about years ago it was very different getting a confession we had the you know the telephone books or whatever but we can't talk about that life, life <laughs> I was actually going to say telephone yeah. books yeah. <laughs> <laughs> life's changed with uh, telephone books and then uh, yeah so but now it's all about um, it's a conversation rather than um, um, what's the word uh, a con- confrontation we don't want that anymore we it's about um, talking to them and getting them um, to feel comfortable and tell you about it. And to actually, I find that a real skill, is to be able to mm. listen to a pedophile 
tell you about the, the most horrendous offences against children and all you do is sit opposite them and go, uh-huh, mm-hmm, and how did that feel or what did they say, like without any emotion other than an emotion of I understand, well, we don't understand, but, um, you know, can you tell me more about that? That's bloody hard to do when underneath all you want to do is fly over the over the desk and give him a clip, but you can't do that. <laughs> give him a clip. <laughs> my words in the in the car, my words in the car is about as much of a clip as I can give them. So <laughs> <laughs> the getting back to um, the ending and everything when you the diagnosis in regards to the PTSD did you find that you had a lot of people reaching out to you and say I'm also feeling this as well as part of within your team no not within my my team but I can tell you that even still even now the amount of um, correspondence I get on email from members Mm ex and current, Mm. that are saying you've, you know, given me the strength to go and seek help. or I I now um, lecture out at the police academy um, to recruits uh, about mental health and about, you know, it's okay to feel like you're not coping and to seek help and all that sort of stuff. Uh, And when you were talking before, you asked me about um, uh, do I miss the being an advocate for victims and all that sort of stuff. I found another way to do that. So now with my, mm-hmm. I um, do, uh, I present, um, um, I, you know, do, well, hard to believe, but I do these sort of shows now where people come and listen to me and I tell funny stories, I tell sad stories, but I also talk a lot about the emotions of policing. And so in a way... I'm still talking about all that stuff and dealing with it, but just on a, it's just different. Like um, I can still advocate and encourage people to go and seek help and all that, but I don't actually sit and listen to um, uh, people tell their traumatic stories and feel so helpless because I can't do any, because as a police person, you actually felt responsible and I thought, oh, my God, what can, I have to do something to help this woman. Well, now I feel by talking to people and um, explaining how I felt, that's just another way to help victims rather than actually sitting down and taking their statements, if that makes sense. So when you're saying you're doing shows, you mentioned that you're speaking at the Police Academy. What other shows are you doing? Is this more motivational public speaking? Yep, I do um, uh, public speaking. What's happened is with Australian True Crime, um, I'm quite surprised, but I've got quite a following. <laughs> and and so what's happened is because of the following, people, you know, for whatever reason, they like me and they want to hear me. So we put on these, um, it's like a, a show, like where people come, at, you know, in, in a, um, a theatreette or a... Um, like people pay money and they, I stand on the stage and I tell people stories about my policing. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Oh, my God, Fiona. Like, seriously, I cannot get my head around it. But 
people actually want to listen to me and I think, you know what, um, if that's the way that I can get to people and be entertaining but also get a very, very important message across um, and they pay money to hear me talk, oh, my God, like seriously, doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> Why do you find it fascinating that people want to hear your story? Because I, I think that I think it's quite a um, an obvious thing that people want to hear your story. I mean, your your career in the police force a is amazing what you've done, and along with a whole lot of other people within the police force as well, also doing similar sorts of jobs. Yeah, but it's so removed from norm like people's normal nine to five going to a corporate office sitting down that's why people want to hear these stories I I think the trouble I have with it is that I know that every other police person I know has the stories that I well has a similar story you know um they may not may not have um dug up a dead body but they may have um most police have got stories that could fill a book most police would be able to fill a book with their stories but I suppose the difference with me is that um, I'm happy to um, talk about it but I talk about the emotional side of policing um, Mm. and I think that's what people are attracted to that I talk about my emotions and, um, I don't know, how scared I was or how upset I was, where um, generally you don't hear police talk like that because as a police person you have got to remain, you've got to be very strong and like you can't be telling a sad story to a police person and you've got the victim crying and you're a bundle of you know tears as well. You just can't do that. So you've got to put up this facade you know this wall but the Mm. wall's now down and I can tell people um, how I felt and how difficult it was and I think it it shows people that um, I like people to see that police are just like anybody else Um, the human side of policing and Mm. the human side of policing Mm. yeah and that's what I like to um, show. And, and obviously, uh, that's what I like to share. And I, that's what I think people might sort of resonate with. But don't get me wrong. Every police person has stories like mine. Maybe I just enjoy telling them and, I don't know, I can tell them. I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, I'll keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you've got quite a following. And to the point of now you're... You're getting your own TV series. Well, yes. Um, yeah. Again, <laughs> seriously, you know, Narelle Fraser, she's nothing special. And and now, I'm, you know. Yes, she is. Oh, my yes, God. Yes, you are, Narelle. <laughs> it, it, it just does my head in, you know. Um, anyway, so, you know, I went to Morty Chelsea High. You know, I lived in Edith Vale. Um, oh, let me, anyway, let, let's move on from that. Um, so, oh, where was I? See, I've got ahead of myself. What was it? What TV was show. Oh, yeah, TV. You're turning, in, you're turning into me, Narelle. I'm like this all the time. <laughs> where am I at? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so because of the following with Australian True Crime, 
um, like you, you know how you got onto me through listening to it. Well, um, yeah. a TV producer, no, actually, I'll take that back, a playwright uh, contacted me. She lives in Newcastle in New South Wales. And she contacted me about mm-hmm. two years ago now and she said, can I come down and spend a day with you? I've got a bit of an idea. I'm thinking about writing a play about you. And like, really? About me? And I thought, oh, well, you know, what have I got to lose? So she comes down and we get on like a house on fire. And um, anyway, I remember. You're not a hard person to get along with, Narelle. <laughs> but but when she um, when she left, this is what she told me later, she went home. We stayed in Melbourne that night and went out for, you know, dinner. We had a lovely night. Anyway. Apparently she went home the next day and her head was full of all this stuff I'd told her and she was thinking to herself, how am I going to fit that into a 40-minute play? Well, her husband happens to be a TV producer um, and so she was telling him and that's where they started to get this idea of a TV. They thought I had so much, so many stories they could write, we could do a series. Anyway, so it grew. And um, then they got contacted by somebody international. Seriously, I mean, and um, this isn't all that well known, but an international company got interested uh, and things were going along very well and COVID came up and, of course, everything now is, um, uh, well... Bloody COVID. Yeah, bloody COVID. But now um, we've decided we're just going to keep it our initial plan was to um, film it in um, Australia and just keep it nice and simple. Mm-hmm. Let's not get to, um, you know, I, I had visions of an Academy Award. I was starting to wonder what I should wear to the Academy Award. <laughs> um, <laughs> but now it's just going to probably be the Logies or something. <laughs> so um, The Logies is our Australian Award. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, and very, Victor- very Victorian, isn't it, the Logies, or is that Australian? Oh, I don't know. Anyway. No, well, it's Australian. It's now up in the Gold Coast, so I think it's getting more. Oh, yeah, I could, yeah, yeah. I could go it's up there. Um, yeah, so anyway, so yeah. now we've gone back to plan A, and that's just to, um, uh, you know, do it here. But it's probably going to be more like a, a documentary. I, I, we really, they've got ideas, and I think we'll just leave it at that. But it's very exciting. But really pinch yourself stuff really (laughs) yeah very exciting well I think that you deserve every positive thing that comes your way Narelle and I I just wish you all the best you're doing your public speaking now as well which people can find you through your website yes um, for public speaking and you can I suppose with COVID you can do that through Zoom and stuff and still uh, do public speaking for companies through that is that a possibility oh yeah yeah I do that but um oh it's not the same I miss that the you know the um personal interaction it's uh it's not the same but look you've got to do you know I'm the same as everyone else we have to deal with you know what's thrown our way but it's certainly um put a dint in things for a while but we'll get back I don't know when but we'll get back but if people do want to um contact me they can um, contact me through my website, um, narellfraser.com. 
uh, even even that saying that Fiona, I just I, I just can't believe that I have my own website. Like even so, that's you know it's amazing. Oh dear, <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole new world. Narelle, it's been an absolute joy speaking with you. I wish you all the best of success with the TV doco that's coming out and your public speaking. And um, I'll continue to listen to the Australian True Crimes podcast because it's amazing. And uh, thank Thank you you. so much for joining me today. Thanks for your time, Fiona. Bye. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them.